Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's now stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we give our attention to your word, Lord, that you would give us the humility that you and the word deserve. Father, you you are our creator and we are but dust. And so, Father, I pray that we would, we would learn from you, that we would cling to your words and that they would dwell within us richly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So the Apostle Paul, as you remember, sits imprisoned, waiting for his execution. He's imprisoned. He's coming to the end of his work. Many of his disciples around him are abandoning him. They're embarrassed by his chains. He is writing now to his son in the faith. This is the second letter. Uh, that he's written to his son in the faith, Timothy, urging him not to go along the same path, urging him not to abandon the gospel, not to abandon Paul. Um, He, Timothy, is to continue on with the ministry of the word and the use of those gifts that came to him through the laying on of hands by Paul in the presbytery. He's to be a servant of Christ's church and to continue on being a servant of Christ's church. No matter, no matter if, his, if his life follows that of the Apostle Paul, or worse yet, if his life follows that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Given the urging that the Apostle Paul has laid upon Timothy, it's no surprise where this letter turns to uh, next. The, the theme of serving Christ in the church continues. That's been the theme of 1 Timothy. That's been the theme of of 2 Timothy. The apostle is concerned that the message of the gospel through, through the body of Christ move forward, that it continue on. That, uh, that the gospel go out to all the nations, that they fulfill that uh, great commission. It is urgent for Paul when he sees so many falling away, when he sees so many um, embarrassed, and when he sees so many give in to the political powers of the day. And here is the Apostle Paul sitting in prison due to that power. And, and people, 
people, it appears, were, uh, were counting the cost and finding it too high. We're, we're embarrassed by what, uh, what Paul represented. So Paul begins with encouragement in this text. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. A number of points stand out in that single verse. First, Paul reminds Timothy of their relationship. Right, Paul, Paul is Timothy's father in the faith, and Timothy is Paul's uh, spiritual son. And yet, we know we know from from this this very book that it was it was uh, Timothy's mother and his grandmother and their influence. That's how he came to faith. That's how he learned the scriptures. But the apostle Paul acted as a father in the maturing and the, uh, the, the growing of Timothy's faith. And that, that is what spiritual fathering looks like, right? That is what fathering should be. It is not just assuring that those who are in your care are converted, but also that they mature, right? Not that they just come to faith, but that there's ongoing maturity, there's growth in the Lord, Right? Given that Timothy began traveling, you remember, with the Apostle Paul when he was just a teenager, um, we can safely say that almost everything Timothy knew about the ministry and how to make disciples and how to lead in the church was all taught to him by the Apostle Paul. That's where he learned it, um, outside and, uh, and outside of the Scripture. And so, and what was not taught to Timothy on the ground was, was written to him in a couple of inspired letters that he receives from his father in the faith. And so Paul is, is pouring himself out to Timothy. He, this spiritual son, he's pouring himself into this man. And the fruit of that relationship was a strengthened church where believers in, in, in Jesus Christ could be strengthening others, right? In this ongoing line of, of disciples, Paul also reminds Timothy, once again, as he has before in this letter, of the power of the grace of God. The power of the grace of God. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, If your conception of Christianity is that salvation comes through the keeping of the law or the keeping of a few laws, like, like don't drink, like don't dance, like don't listen to drums well, then you don't know anything about the strength to be found in the grace of God. The grace of God is the very basis of your salvation. It's it's everything. The grace of God, the, the undeserved favor he has shown toward you by his sovereign and unconditional choice is the very fuel of the Christian life, right? That he has chosen you that he has given you his spirit, that he has given you gifts. That's the fuel of the Christian life. And there wasn't anything that you contributed to that. It's unconditional favor by Almighty God. That's the grace of God. To know, to truly know that your sins are forgiven. All of them, by grace, leads to a heart so filled with gratitude that your every desire is to live in a way that glorifies your Father in heaven. Right? To know your sins are forgiven leads you to holiness. It leads you also to fear. 
our obedience is is a fruit of the grace of God. That's what our obedience is. It does. It is not our way of impressing God so that He saves us. It's the fruit of God's grace being given to us. Turn things around and believe that your obedience produces the grace of God in your life, and you will know nothing about the power of God that comes by his grace. You won't know anything about the power of God. You'll just know about the power of yourself. Um, We do not work so that God will be gracious to us. right? God has been gracious to his, his children, which allows them then to work. And to produce good fruit. The grace of God is primary. It's first. It is powerful as it allows us to go on and do that which truly glorifies God by faith. Now, Paul goes on to tell Timothy that he is to do for others just exactly as has been done for him. Timothy is now to be a spiritual father to other spiritual sons. He writes, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so, the leaders of the church are to be taught by the leaders of the church. That's the first thing I take out of this. The leaders of the church are to be taught by the leaders of the church. Okay? Um, the future leaders of the church are to be taught by the current leaders of the church. This has always been the understanding of the church. We do not train pastors and leaders um, and leaders of the church in, for example, universities. Our, our pastors are not trained in universities. They may be trained. They may receive some education there, but they they are not trained for the ministry. In universities, we do not send them to get degrees in biblical studies at state schools. It doesn't make any sense. We train our elders and we train our pastors in the church by men who have been called to the office for which they are training other men. That has been the pattern. That has been what we do in the churches. This is why most seminaries boast that they're Professors have spent time in the pastorate or are currently elders in the church, serving as elders in the church. But even better than seminaries, right, even better than academic institutions would be to train our pastors by active, scholarly, currently working in the church pastors and elders. That's what we would be doing, not outsourcing to parachurch ministries like seminaries. The welder apprentices with a master welder in the shop, right? That's, what, that's where he learns, not in a classroom with virtual tools, right? Timothy learned the work of ministry when he, as a teenager, went along with Apostle Paul, right, on his missionary journeys. And now when Paul is about to be with the Lord, Timothy is to do that same thing. He's to teach the teachers who will teach the teachers who will teach the teachers who will teach the teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? John Frame, who is a uh, a theologian who teaches in one of those seminaries, although he he should have left given what I'm about to share with you, um, in his influential essay, Proposal for a New Seminary, and I say it's influential because that essay was the reason that the Clear Note Pastors College started, of which I'm a board member, and the Reformed Evangelical Pastors College in Toledo that we started 
um, started. It was because of it was, I mean, because of the conviction from the Holy Spirit and the uh, the work of the elders. But it was it came about by reading this essay by John Frame, and I just want to share a little bit about that because it fits in with this verse. He he writes in the early days of American Protestantism. The training of ministerial candidates was carried on by pastors of churches. A young man feeling a call of God to the ministry would associate himself with a church pastor, receive training from him, participate in the work of the parish, perhaps even live in the pastor's home. I am not sure why, but eventually this system was felt to be inadequate. Perhaps there developed a shortage of ministers able and willing to take in theological students. Perhaps as the literacy rate increased, congregations demanded clergy with more formal education, a learned ministry, as they used to say. At any rate, for some reason or other, theological training was institutionalized and at the same time academicized. I think that's a word. He goes on then to say, We have seen that training for the ministry is by the teaching of the word of God as it bears upon human life. Who is qualified to teach the word? The scriptural answer is clear. Teachers of the church. Teachers of the word are given the spirit and they are given to the church as the body of Christ. Teachers have official status in the church as elders and are entitled to remuneration by the church. To educate a teacher of the word, one must himself be a teacher of the word. And it is the church which in the New Testament recognizes administers and profits from the teaching of the word. A seminary which does not do the work of the church does not train men for the ministry either. Right? I mean, it's so easy. Uh, it, It is largely because of our infatuation with the academic rather than godly character and apprenticeship that we have turned to a different model away from the church. This verse in in 2 Timothy 2 is essential to the ongoing work of the ministry. If we expect our pastors to know how to pastor, we must be sure that this verse is obeyed and that our Timothys know that they are to produce other Timothys, and so on and so forth. This is the work of the church, and not institutions detached from the church. Um, that, that, is not to, that is not to discount at all. In fact, I think it's absolutely critical, the work of presbyteries, which is a court of the church in this work, right? We ordain men in pres- the presbyteries ordain men. This church doesn't ordain men. Presbyteries have the role of ordaining men and checking their education. But the education should t- take place in local bodies, and uh, we must return to this as John Frame and this, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit urges on us. And lest we forget, these teachers are to be the men of the church. In the previous letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, but to remain quiet. Academic institutions get that all messed up. Right? Academic institutions separate themselves from the church so that they can break this rule. Right? Because they have, you know, we find the, the commands of God are, are not burdensome, but are wonderful and helpful. Right? We intend to obey this verse. 
The work of the ministry is not easy. I think that's where the Apostle Paul goes next as he's giving these three different examples. The work of the ministry is not easy. That is why the training must be with those who have actually engaged in the particular battle. I imagine the best teachers at West Point are those teachers that have had the most time in the field, right, and engaging in the work that they were trained to do. But really, one, you know, doesn't need, uh, one doesn't learn to be a paratrooper in the classrooms of West Point. One learns to be a paratrooper by insanely jumping out of a plane after the guy who's done it a thousand times and learning from him, right? The work of the, work of the ministry is, is the same. The work of the ministry is hard. It requires a specific kind of training, a specific kind of discipline of which the church is failing today. Um, Paul goes on to mention three other vocations or activities that are also hard, but they offer analogies to the work of the ministry, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Soldier, athlete, and farmer. Paul writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Why, why does the Apostle Paul use this analogy? Well, he's, he's, he's urging Timothy to, to suffer like a soldier. He's, he's urging him to fulfill this mission. A good soldier as we know, is not distracted by civilian affairs when he is in the midst of a mission. Right? He may long to call his wife. Right? He may long to hold his children. He may, he may long to see the school play and, and be behind a desk earning a steady paycheck, but he also cannot be distracted by those civilian affairs when he is on the mission. Right? He has a single focus, and everybody around him is to have that single focus too, and the commanders are to keep them focused. He must be focused. He must be committed. Just as the soldier's aim here is to please the one who enlisted him, so it is the, the minister's aim to please the one who called him to the ministry. Now, this is not an enlistment officer we're talking about here. Who enlists all the men who go into the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. The United States does, right? The country does. Just as ministry, ministers are not, uh, are, not, um, are not called first by the church, they're called by the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There has to be that calling. And so, so to, to be a soldier and to please the one who enlisted you is to fulfill the mission. It is to do as the nation has called you to do. And to, to be a good soldier as a minister is to fulfill the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to you, that God himself has given to you. The athlete. The athlete has to have a certain, certain adherence to rules, to the rules of the game. Paul writes also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Imagine, imagine if a baseball team, all of them, started corking all their bats. Right? You, you drill out the core of the bats and you fill it up with um, super balls or corks or something. 
uh, something spongy, and when you hit the ball, it springs off the ball, and you can uh, you you can get very much more offensive production. Sammy Sosa, you might remember, got busted after he hit all those home runs. He he was uh, one of his bats broke, and it was filled with super balls or something like that. And this is back in the the 90s, I believe, or early 2000s. But that gave him an unfair advantage, right? That gave him an unfair advantage. He was punished then for breaking the rules. Imagine if, if his team defended him by saying it made him a much better hitter. You know, why wouldn't he do that? He could hit better. Um, that's why we did it for all of our batters. They could hit better. The league would, would just respond with it's against the rules. you got to compete according to the rules or there's not competition. You're done. You're out. Um, the, rule, the rules of the game define just exactly how someone has to train. Think of that, too. Um, batters in baseball need to train with a properly weighted legal bat, right? If you practice with something that's court, and then you get in the game and use something else, well, it's not going to work. Football players, and that's two weeks in a row with a football analogy. So, you know. Football players have to put on muscle and weight right, without using steroids. They have to be big, but they have to do it in the ways that the, the, the league has defined. Soccer players have to learn not to use their hands unless they're goalies. Right? And all of this means that they have to work harder to stay within the rules of the game. To be good and stay within the rules of the game is hard work. Right? The best athletes are those who are both physically gifted and stay within the rules. Uh, think, of, um, think of all those Olympic sprinters that, were, that have been busted for doping. They were certainly physically gifted, but they, they disregarded the rules and were thus disqualified from the race. The rule book for the ministry is the Word of God. Ministers are not to make up rules, they're not to change rules, they're not to disregard the rules. They are to know the rules and administer them, right? They, they are to know God's word, they are to share God's word, they are even to enforce God's word, and they are to be disciplined by God's word, as are all Christians. So the final, the final example here is that of a farmer. Paul writes, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Notice it says the hardworking farmer, the disciplined farmer. The one who works hard, who keeps up with his land and, and his plants with diligence, will benefit from that discipline, right? He will receive the first share of the crops. Um, there's a good benefit from the difficult work that he's engaged in. At the end of toilsome work, he enjoys his crop as well as able to bless others with the crop that he produces. So Timothy is to produce a crop of workers by the diligence of his own hard work, as the Apostle Paul has done. As he trains up teachers diligently, he will enjoy the fruit of seeing the diligent work yield further teachers. This is the joy of, of parents who eventually see their own children teaching the faith to their children, right? They see a yield of fruit from that which the crop that they poured into, right? And, and all of that diligent work has yielded fruits down through generations. 
So the disciplined soldier does not get distracted. The athlete competes by the rules. And the farmer enjoys the fruit of his labor. Paul is, is giving Timothy this picture of the work he's to do as a minister of the gospel. Don't get distracted. Don't break the rules. And enjoy the fruit of your labor. Those three things are very important. Um, it made me think of this verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Don't get distracted. Lay aside the sins that encumber you. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right? Run with endurance. Keep going. Don't get distracted. Compete by the rules. There's a race set, and you're in the midst of it. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. There's the undistracted focus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's Jesus enjoying the fruit of his labor. He had joy set before him. Right, That's why he endured the cross. He had joy set before him. He would produce a, an incredible harvest for his father. It's a temptation for us to be distracted, isn't it? It's just that it's constantly, constant distraction. It's a temptation for us to be distracted. It's, it's a temptation to become bored with the word of God. It's a temptation to become bored with the church. Temptation to become bored, and it's, it's, it's tragic, it's terrible to even to say this. It's, it's a temptation for us to become bored with God himself. It's a temptation for us to be rebellious. That, that indwelling sin urges us to compete according to our own set of rules, right? It is a temptation to cease bearing fruit, to have nothing uh, to enjoy because we've just been lazy. We haven't been diligent. We haven't been the hardworking laborer. We've been lazy, right? Where, where is the temptation hitting you these days, right? Is it distraction? Is it rebellion or is it laziness? Right? Think about that. Think about that. Which one of these analogies is, is the one where, where you feel as if you're, you're failing the Lord and need his help? And don't forget what the Apostle Paul has already said to Timothy. He wrote, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. In other words, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we can stay focused. Right? We can stay focused. We can, we can play by God's rules, right? We can produce fruit. And, and this, this should be particularly true of ministers of God, of, of pastors, of elders, right? For those who have been called to be leaders in Christ's church, there must be this kind of fruit-producing labor, particularly when it comes to producing other teachers who will lead subsequent generations of the church, if we are merely content with the status quo, uh, I mean, who isn't? I mean, it's funny. We're so discontent with the status quo and yet so content with the status quo. We're like, 
we're like, man, life stinks, and I wish this and I wish that. But then when we see the labor it takes to change our position, we're like, oh, man, maybe the status quo is pretty good. You know, if we're merely content with the status quo, if we're, we are merely content with things going well in our own day, if we are merely content with all that peace in my time and not focused on teaching other teachers who will teach other teachers, uh, well, we're, we're, not very, uh, we're not very tender, first of all, toward our children if we think that, right? And why did God give you children? God gave you children so you would do this so that you would produce a harvest, and so that the church would continue on. And if, if, we, if, we're, if we're happy with the status quo, then we're very short-sighted when it comes to the special calling of the church to make disciples of all the nations. Right? If we are not diligent as leaders in the church, it indicates that we have no view of the ongoing importance of the, the testimony of the gospel in a dying world. Right? How short-sighted can we become? Right? There's a sense in which we can become so... There is a sense right, in which we can become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. To make your life only about longing for heaven. And I've preached sermons telling you to do that. But to make your life only about longing to be in heaven is to miss the aspect of the Christian life. This one, we are called to produce good fruit so that the mercy of of God and Jesus Christ can spread to our neighbors and our cities and our nations, right? And to subsequent generations. If you're parenting according to God's rules, you're engaged in this work, right? Are you trying to make your children disciples of Christ, or are you trying to make them fit in with the world? Right? If the former, you're engaged in this disciple-making work for the glory of God in this world. It's not even about your children primarily. It's about you wanting the glory of God to be manifested in this world after you depart and are gone. Right? It's, it's the glory of God being manifested in this world. Finally, the Apostle Paul writes, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Notice, first of all, that in this one little compact verse, there's something Timothy is to do and something simultaneously that the Lord will do. Timothy is to think. He's to consider. He's to set his mind on this as, uh, you know, as a way to gain understanding. And as he does, the Lord will give understanding. Right? He's to think to get understanding, and it's God who gives the understanding as he thinks. Um, human effort and divine sovereignty in one tiny little verse. Um, we have to put forward an effort. We have to put forward an effort. I don't just uh, pray over the passage that I'm going to preach, right? And say, God, let me preach it. Every week. No, I study, I meditate, I write, I prepare. And I hope that in all of that preparation that God is giving me the understanding that I can then communicate here and that he's working through both of those ends of things, right? We work and God works in us and through us. So Timothy is to consider the analogies the Apostle Paul made to make sense of his calling as a pastor. One 
once uh, commentary I read nicely summarized this way. He said, Paul has called on Timothy to suffer hardship and has placed before him three models for him to consider in that service. The soldier who pleases his commander and is not distracted from his service to him, the law-abiding athlete who gains the crown, and the hard-working farmer who received his share of the crops. Together they speak of a vigorous and undivided service that gets a reward. Right? So pray. Pray for the pastors and elders you know, that they would give themselves to this kind of work. Not merely in their own homes, but beyond their homes, everywhere that they go. And that because of this suffering of hardship, the church would be strengthened then for coming generations. We expend our strength so that there might be strength for the generations to come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Or Father, we pray that you would give us this diligence that is set forward in this passage. Particularly, I pray for your, your pastors and elders, Lord, that they would see that you have called them for this task of, of making provision for the coming generations of the church. Father, I pray that we would pour ourselves into training, training our children, training the children of the church, training the men of the church, training women as appropriate in the leadership of the church. God, that there may be strength in the days to come. Father, I pray that your, your church would, would reclaim this, this pattern, reclaim it uh, from the, the, the captivity that the church has to the academy. Pray that the church would be given the knowledge and the wisdom necessary to fulfill this task. Father, locally, Lord, to your glory and to the praise of your Son and to the strengthening of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.